See if I'm on. Yep. Okay. I invite you to take your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21 this morning. We're two weeks away from relaunching our series in the book of Acts. The Spirit at Work to the Ends of the Earth is the series we had done for a number of months. We're going to be returning that in a couple of weeks. But this morning we're speaking a sermon that I am excited about that I think really speaks to us as we are launching 2023. I'm going to read the first nine verses of 1 Samuel 21. If you are looking with the Bible there in front of you, it is page 228. Let me read the first nine verses. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread and whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept their, themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today with their, will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was not bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained from before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? But I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business inquired haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephah. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Lord, we come to you this morning in this unique passage. And God, I ask that you might speak into our lives truth, that we might be dependers on that which is necessary and avoid that which so easily draws our attention. God, may you speak to us through this, this, this particular lesson today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is an unusual passage. I mean, it's a cool passage, but it's an unusual passage. We've all heard the story of David and Goliath. A young teen, 15 to 17 years old, defeats this giant of a warrior in mortal combat, armed only with a slingshot. He then lifts this massive sword of Goliath, undoubtedly with two hands, lifts it up and, and, and chops off the giant's head. We hear nothing more and expect to hear nothing more about Goliath's sword until now. Twelve years later, we have our second encounter with the, the sword of Goliath. This passage, I think, gives unique insights to consider as we launch into a new year. 
Prior to the events of chapter 21, David has been brought into Saul's inner circle as a result of his uh, unique victory over the Philistine champion, Goliath. He's become, over time, a, a, the head of the surrounding circle of the bodyguard of Saul, and he has then been sent out as a general. He's won battle after battle, usually against the Philistines. During that time, David's fame and renown has increased. He has actually become, to, he has actually begun to eclipse the fame and renown of Saul, his king. And Saul is not pleased. In chapter 20, Saul's jealous rage reaches the boiling point. And there in the compound where Saul gathers together all of his leading men, including David, it becomes evident to David and to, jo and to Jonathan, Saul's son, that Saul's rage has, has gotten so out of control that he is actually utterly against David and is now plotting his death. David is forced to flee. And where he flees is actually in chapter 21, he is on his way westward to go to the Philistine territory where he is going to uh, place himself as a mercenary, hopefully an anonymous mercenary in the Philistine army. And on the way, he stops at this place called Nob. And Nob is the location a few miles from where Saul's compound was in Gibeah. And there in Nob, he, uh, he talks to the Ahimelech, who is the high priest, and he says, you know, we need some food, and, and, and I need a weapon. And we come to this unique situation, and we find that this is a bad moment in David's life, emotionally, physically. He's been rushed out. He's on the run. He's come to a place undoubtedly confused. God, years before, had told David, you are the heir to the throne of Israel. He's come, he's served Saul, he has done everything right. And the result is, the king to whom he has attempted to be loyal, to whom he has entered his family because he's married the king's daughter, now wants to put him to death. David's confused. He's on the run. He's an individual that dramatically feels threatened. All of this is the, the emotional status of David. But this scene is not only a low point for David emotionally and physically. Most of all, it is a low point spiritually. David does not depend on the things that have made him great in God's hands. Rather, he depends on the wrong things in this moment. 2023 is upon us. There's new doors opening to us. There's new opportunities. It's a time to recalibrate. It's, there's new challenges there. There's new dangers. I want to encourage you to use this passage and this sermon as both a warning and an invitation to seek God's enablement instead of Goliath's sword. And I'd like to tell you what I mean by that as we jump into this passage this morning. We see here a fourfold path that David follows. And the first of those is we see David in verses 1 through 7 falling away from depending on God. 
David travels the miles, the handful of miles to the city of the priest. And he fears that they will report to Saul that they have seen him because this, it is an odd situation that he shows up. I mean, this is the, the, the confidant of, da, of the king. This is the, the head of his armies. And he just shows up. He doesn't even have weapons with him. He doesn't have armor. He doesn't have many soldiers. He just has a couple of guys with him as a little entourage that are traveling with him. And he's surprised. Matter of fact, it says Ahimelech is, is, is trembling. He's nervous. What's going on? There's something wrong. And so David has to assuage his concerns. And what he does is he lies. He gives, he gives a whopper. He says, well, I'm on a secret mission from Saul. And, and, I, and, you know, and, 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 and I can't tell you all about it, but it's an important mission. And, and so he, he tries to calm the concerns out of protecting his own skin. And in this moment, we see this man turning to manipulation, to deceit. He's working the situation, pretending he's on a mission that he's not. This is a man who has manifested amazing moments of faith. I mean, not only the killing of Goliath as a, as a middle-aged, teenage boy, not only the killing of a bear and the killing of a lion, which all happened when he was a young kid watching the flocks and the hand of God as he enabled him to do that. Not only the victories he's been given over the Philistines. This is a man who has a heart towards, towards God in every way. A man after God's own heart. He's described. We notice in this passage what can so easily transpire in a person's life. There can be a remarkable difference in our lives. David is a man, and we see this throughout the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, actually. David, we see, as in this situation, he is an individual that can be mighty in spirit. He can be, he's a passionate worshiper. He's an influencer of thousands of people towards God, and he really was. He's described as the man after God's own heart. Or, we see him as here, as a self-protecting liar. We see him in other occasions as a sex-consumed adulterer, as a self-seeking destroyer of others. The changes in David are shocking and rapid. It all depends on who he depends on. I remember years ago hearing the story of a, a, a Native American believer. He had come to Christ and he had walked with Christ for many years. And a missionary was there, was talking to him. And, and this guy was describing the battle he felt inwardly. He said, I just I have, a, I have an inner battle that, that I feel. Uh, and I, that's how I view my Christian life. And he said, I feel like I have inside of me two dogs that are always fighting, and they're vying for control. One is gentle and cheerful and friendly. The other is selfish and vicious and agitated. Both fight for power in my life. So the missionary asked, well, which one wins? And he said, whichever I feed the most. We never outgrow the need of feeding the right things into our lives. David at this moment is not living under the influence of God, is not feeding his godly side. 
is not allowing his nature to be uh, oriented towards the Lord by prayer and listening to God. Rather, he reminds us of the danger of looking towards our own resources or the world around us. David fell away from depending on God in this passage, in this scene. Secondly, we find David fell for the enemy's weapon. You read verse 8 and 9, here's what he says. He says to Ahimelech, he says, um, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business inquired haste, required haste, which was not true. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath is here. And he, and he tells him, you know, the one you, the guy you took down, this massive, amazing sword is here. And David's ominous reply is, there's none like that, baby. Give it to me. Now, this is an impressive weapon, right? We know a little bit about Goliath. Goliath was nine feet, nine inches tall. That's what the scripture describes him. If he stood beneath the if he stood beneath the basket in our basketball court, his head is three inches below the rim. His hand easily goes over the backboard, just standing there. He's the guy you want on your ball club. He is an armor of 125 pounds of weight. I talked to Tim Hunt. Tim Hunt does these insane competitions where it's basically, it's called a race, I think, but it's more of an endurance contest where you actually, one of the parts of it is, and you go for hours and hours, they wear weights. And I said, how much weight? He says, usually you weigh 30 pounds of weights. And so it's more of, of a, a, a battle of attrition. You know, who's going to survive this thing? You're carrying 30 pounds of weight. This guy's carrying 125 weights every time he goes out on the battlefield. This is his armor. It's a big man. I mean, this is not some spindly nine foot nine guy. This is a massive human being. His spear. That's the thing you throw. The head of the spear, just the point, weighs 16 pounds. That's like having a spear with a bowling ball on the end. You know, we all pick that thing up and it immediately goes like that. She's a big guy, a big dude. And he has a big sword in length and in weight. And David rightly says, there's none like that one. Give it to me. The inappropriateness of the weapon for David strikes us. <laughs> What's David going to do with this? The average height of Men back in this day in the ancient Near East was five foot eight inches tall. There is nothing in the scripture that implies that David is any bigger than the normal guy. Saul is. They describe Saul as this huge guy. He's obviously well over six. But David's an average guy. He's an average Joe. And he's saying, you know, yeah, give, give me this, give me this, um, this sword. A number of years ago, there was a photo taken of two professional basketball players on the same team. We can bring that up. The guy on the left is Minute Bowl, seven foot six or seven. 
and Muggsy Bogues, who was 5'4", 5'5". Five, five, five. They actually played on the same ball club. Now, Manu Bull, actually, just sidebar. I used to do chapel a lot with the Sixers, as you know, and uh, when Bruce McDonald was here, and Marion and I were down in the tunnel one time below the court, and um, Manute Bowl came out of the locker room. Now, we're, these guys are all big. Well, most of them are all big. But Manute Bowl came out of the room and stood. And I can still remember Marion was standing here and I was here. And here comes Manute. And I just remember watching Marion lean back into me, literally, physically, like, oh my goodness. He is big. He's over two feet shorter than Goliath. Muggsy Bogues is close to the height of David. I just want you to see, this guy was gigantic. He has a gigantic sword, and he's giving it to David. It's now, David's now taking it. And you can imagine, what's David going to do with this sword? They're going to say, David, David, we're going to go to battle. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm coming, I'm coming. He can't use this. He can't wield it. As a matter of fact, where he's going to Gath is one of the Philistine cities. It's about 30 miles to the, to the west of where they are. And he's going to go and offer himself as an anonymous mercenary in the city of Gath. Do you know who was born and whose city is the city of Gath? Goliath. It's Goliath of Gath. So you're going to... They're going to walk in with his sword. Say, oh, I just found this thing lying, you know, along the road somewhere. I just happened to use it to chop his head off. There is nothing about this sword that it makes any sense that David is using it. Maybe we could say maybe he, he, he found some encouragement. It reminded him of how God had used him in the past. Maybe he thinks it will bring back the magic. But this sword did not give David the victory. A little slingshot gave David the victory in the hand of God. The victory was not David's, it was God's. David is appropriating and enamored with the wrong weapon. We easily do the same thing. Even though it is utterly appropriate to us, Goliath's sword can wow us. Paul talks about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, in, in defending himself against those that were, were attacking him, he said, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For our weapon, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. Here in Corinth, what was happening, there was a small pocket of dissidents who were bad-mouthing Paul. And Paul's writing his second letter because these guys worshipped power. They worshipped uh, and admired oratory. They valued being impressive, influential. And here's what they said about, about Paul. They said he's not impressive. In chapter 10, his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. There's no wow to the guy. He has bad eyesight, which he historically is rumored to have had as he talks about struggles he had not being able to write and having to have people do his letters for him. He was a little guy. He wasn't, or, uh, he wasn't a great speaker. He didn't wow people. 
These guys also said, he's not powerful. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 10, On my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. He was given some amazing revelation from God, but he says, but to keep me humble, God gave me a thorn in the flesh, some physical limitation, or an adversary that ate his lunch, we're not sure which, to keep me from being conceited. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, I don't fight with the weapons of the world. I don't do ministry with the weapons of the world. I'm not looking for Goliath's sword. That's the enemy's tool. That's the tool that is not empowered by God to be used in my life. I shared a book a few months ago with you. I am not trying to get you to buy the book, but I, I just think it's important to, to have a visual of this. It is a book that is called The 48 Laws of Power. I think I got it on, up there. Do we have that on a visual? Oh. This is a new system we have where different places are visuals, and I'm not sure where they are yet, and I'm finding them. All right. The 48 Laws of Power is a book that, as I mentioned to you, is... Basically, the main groups, that ha the, the hottest groups that have, have read this book are convicts and prominent players in Hollywood. There is a new group that has actually been very much buying into it, and that is certain political circles. And the book is described this way by one of the reviews I read of it. It was actually the first time I had heard about the book before I got it. It's, it is a classic book on human psychology written by Robert Greene. Most of the laws are undeniably true. But if you have any sense of morality, the book may leave you feeling very uncomfortable. They are principles, many of them, that work. They work in controlling others and, and securing one's own power. I want to share a few. Examples of the 48 laws. Conceal your intentions. Keep people off balance and in the dark by never revealing the purposes behind your actions. If they have no clue of what you are up to, they cannot prepare a defense. Guide them far enough down the wrong path, envelop them in enough smoke, and by the time they realize your intentions, it'll be too late. Conceal your intentions. Secondly, court attention at all costs. Draw attention to yourself by creating an unforgettable, even controversial image. Court scandal, do anything to make yourself seem larger than life and shine more brightly than those around you. A third one, get others to do the work for you, but always take the credit. Use the wisdom, knowledge, and legwork of other people to further your own cause. Not only will such assistance save you valuable time and energy, it will give you a godlike aura of efficiency and speed. In the end, your helpers will be forgotten and you will be remembered. Never do yourself what others can do for you. Fourth, I'm just going to share five. Make other people come to you. Use bait if necessary. When you force the other person to act, you are the one in control. It's always better to make your opponent come to you, abandoning his own plans in the process. Fifth, learn to keep people dependent on you. 
To maintain your independence, you must always be needed and wanted. The more you relied on, the more freedom you have. Make people depend on you for their happiness and prosperity, and you have nothing to fear. Never teach them enough so that they can do without you. When our world thinks of power, many times, many of those in power secure it and keep it by applying those kinds of principles, or at least seeds of it. But they are contrary to godliness. They are contrary to Christ. This kind of power is Goliath's sort. It's the weapons of the enemy. We can have David's response. Yeah, there's none like it. We can admire it. Associate with those who wield it. We can do that with our, our, our political heroes. Of course, the, their behavior is that of a mocker, of a liar, of a bully. But he or she is my bully. And therefore, I admire it. We can do it with our pastors. Pastors can build things on power and control and avoid accountability. Be brash, domineering, building a culture of being cooler, being righter than everybody else. It's Goliath's swords, not Christ. But not only can we admire it, we can embrace it. There's none like it, David said. Give it to me. When we depend on being able to intimidate others, when we depend on being able to work it and manipulate others, even positively and cheerfully, but we know we're working it and working people. When we tend on being able to turn people toward us and against others. When, we don't, when we're unwilling to show our weaknesses, our brokenness, our lacks. When we're unwilling to be criticized, to yield our agendas, to respond gently when wrong, to forgive. To see others elevated at the expense of our own advancement. When we are in that place, we've tried to use Goliath's sword. They are the weapons of the enemy. They are not the heartbeat of Christ. I'm not just speaking theory. When I read those 48 laws, which I had never heard of, there were multiple places in that book I saw myself. I have some leadership gifts. I enjoy leadership. And I believe that my whole Christian journey is God weaning me from my flesh. The power of the church is that we do not wield the world's weapons. We live as humble, broken people. We say, no, we're not going to find our security in being uh, us, and there's them. Our church, their church. Depending on Christ as humble men and women, women transparent men and women, gentle-spirited men and women who delight in seeing others 
increase, when we decrease, this is the weapon of Christ. This heart of the servant. There's some of you that's going to buy the book. I actually was reminded of it in Barnes & Noble recently when I saw on a table, and I was sick to my stomach, honestly, and it said, National Bestseller. And I'm just going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you flat out, if you read it, I would love to talk with you. Because if you're a leader, you're going to find some things. Yeah, that could worry. That could, it's, but I want to tell you, I'm spending my whole life not living according to that book. But David bought. He admired the sword. He took the sword. And he fell into disgrace. Here's what happened in verse 10 through 15 in chapter 21. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath, who was also called yeah, he also was called Bimelech. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And he throws him out. David traveled the 30 miles. He's hoofing it over there, and he gets there, and he's trying to present himself as an anonymous mercenary. I mean, this is, this is his profession, right? He's a soldier. And he's, he feels thrown out of Israel, so he's going to go to, to, to there. But, but again, he's working it. He's lied to the priests. He's working the circumstances. And he's outed. Somebody recognizes him. He said, wait, wait, wait. This is the guy they sing about. David has his ten thousands. Who are the ten thousands? Philistines. And David's like, oh my goodness. I got to do something quick. And he starts letting spittle go down his beard and starts acting like he's, he's deranged mentally. And he gets thrown out. But this great warrior of God, this man who conquered the greatest champion of the Philistines, now stands in the presence acting completely insane to protect his own life. The reality is, if we want our lives to be used by God, if we want our lives to be involved in concert with the work of God, we cannot embrace Goliath's sword. It will lead to failure. It will lead to sorrow. I remember years ago when I was just raising support to be a church planner. I was in my, I guess I was about 27, 20 years old. And I, uh, I had been asked to speak at a youth group, a local youth group. 
and God just gave me a message, and it was, it was on uh, purity, which had not been true of my life as a young man. And I just shared my heart, and God used the message in a, in a really powerful, beautiful way. And uh, soon after that, I was invited again. Now, I mean, I was prayed up. I went into this thing. I was nervous. I didn't have much speaking opportunities before that. But God really gave me liberty. And a few weeks later, I got an invitation from a young adult group, similar age. And I was invited to come and speak. It was a little bigger group, a little, a little more prominent. But, um, and I knew I had the message. I mean, I, I had a home run message. And I went to that thing, and I was busy with a thousand other things, and I wasn't prayed up. I wasn't really prepared. I, I mean, I had the message. I knew this worked. And I went in, and, and horrifically, was actually, they didn't have me speak three times in a row. It was a weekend seminar. So I was with them for two full days. Well, Friday night, and it ended Saturday night. So I had to speak Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon. And each time got worse. It was horrible. If you've ever done public speaking and you just have one of those moments, you realize five minutes in, nobody is with me, nobody wants to be, and I want to be anywhere else. I couldn't get my thoughts together. It was terrible. And it was so awkward that I actually, you know, you're supposed to speak. You're supposed to be available to talk to people. I didn't want to talk to anybody for 24 hours. I just was, and I had to speak twice more. It was terrible. But man, it was a gift of God for me. Because I just realized, I, I, I think I needed God so much, but now I got it. Now I can depend on my resources. Now I've got the message. We can fall into disgrace. We can have moments where God has to show us what he showed David in spades. There are times when we do need to just crash and burn. David is there. But my fourth point is this. That's where God met David, again. You see, we're told that what happened when David was run out of Gath, he went to the wilderness, he went to a cave called Adullam, and we're told what was going on in David's life because he wrote a psalm about it at this very moment. It's Psalm 34. It's a psalm that talks about David where he's feeling fear where he is feeling overwhelmed. In Psalm 34, written just after, and I, I should have, I forgot this, I forgot to write it down. I want to read you the title of Psalm 34. Here's the title of Psalm 34. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, which was a number, another name for the king of Gath, so that he drove him out and he went away. This is what David's sequel to that event was. Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. 
the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. He says, God in his grace and mercy saw me when I was overwhelmed. And I've, been, I've been trying to do everything. I'm trying to rely on all my resources and everything is, is just making it worse and worse. And I'm overwhelmed with fears. And then finally, David says, I just turned to God and I cried out to God. And what God showed me was one thing. God showed me himself. He says, God reminded me of who he is and how I can trust him. How in the world I was able to defeat this giant one time. How I was able to go forth in my life. And how it wasn't because I had a sword like Goliath. It was because I had a God like God. And then this beautiful statement in Psalm 34, verse 11 says, Come, O children, listen to me, and I'll teach you the fear of God. The awe, to be awed by God, stunned with the greatness and goodness of God. David leaned into it. He leaned into who God was, and he stopped trying to find help and aid in useless places. Maybe you're here trying to depend on the wrong things. Maybe you hadn't thought about it. Maybe you've got your own sword of Goliath. Maybe, honestly, you are trying to work situations and manipulate people. Maybe you are trying to maintain an image that you know is not really who you are and what you are or what's going on. Maybe you're working harder and harder as if your efforts will enable you to maintain control. The beauty of this story and the end of this story is that God was there all the time for David. And when David turned his heart and looked up, he found the God that was willing to awe him again, to just stun him with his, his power that David, I'll take care of you. I mean, even the fact that you weren't killed there, in, the, in spite of the, the, the ridiculous way you went about it, I've got you. I'm taking care of you. I'm going to deliver you. And it was after this time David began to gather people and he protects his family and all kinds of beautiful things happen, even though he's on the run from Saul. I don't know where you are today, but I invite you to take the simple lesson of Goliath's sword and say, this is not your weapon. It's not your weapon. If you belong to Christ, if you've embraced Jesus as your Savior, we don't arm ourselves with the world's armor. We arm ourselves with the power of Christ. We depend on Christ. We yield to Christ. We allow the humility of Christ, the gentleness of Christ, the forbearance of Christ, the forgiving spirit of Christ, the yielding one's rights, the willingness to have others increase, if even to our decrease of Christ. He's willing to arm us with all of that. There are going to be dangers. Some of them may be beginning already in your life. There are going to be opportunities. There's all kinds of stuff that God has for you this year. 
God help us to not look to Goliath's sword to be our strength, but to the surpassing glory of Jesus himself. Lord, you know how this message speaks to everybody, and I just ask you to apply it in the ways you see the need. I know what it means to me to be freed from looking to my own resources or my own ways of trying to work things, but to just die to self and live in the power of Christ. Lord, call us to that place this morning, I pray, that you can be glorified and you can be exalted we joyfully say with the psalmist, not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but unto your name give glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.